My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Yeah. Welcome back to the Prison Post. I'm Richard Morales, and this is my co-host, Jason Bryant. Hello, everybody. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you here, here, Jay. We got a great guest today. We're here at Darling New Media Podcast Studio in Sacramento, California, and I'm excited about today's show. We got our guest, uh, DJ Vodka. He's the largest whistleblower in CDCR history. He wrote the book, The Green Wall. Uh, He grew up in Camarillo, California. And left to join the Army in uh, 1983. After, being, after serving four years in the Army, he joined the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in 1987. His admirable work ethic and reputation furthered his honorable career in law enforcement. And, um, but uh, at, at some point, he started seeing things that weren't right, up until the point of testifying in the Senate uh, about what was going on behind the walls. We want to welcome you to the show today, DJ Vodica. Uh, welcome. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate having me on your show. And and talking about my story and whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah, for sure. And uh, me and Jason wanted to point out, we like to do a little icebreaker before we get started, just to just to smile and break up break up the the, the seriousness. It is a serious topic, but we want to break it up by sharing. This is and we want to ask you: Is this the first time you've been on the show with two um, people that have served uh, life sentences in the Department of Corrections and uh, Rehabilitation? Yes, it is. It's the very first time. All right. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly our first time actually being on the other side of an interview with a former CO. So it's, it's a first for both of us, all three of us, I think. Well, it, it is a, it's a powerful story and, and it, it needs to be heard. And, sure. And uh, it needs to be, uh, there's definitely needs to be change in the system, especially after what, what we talk about. Well, um, I'm glad. I'm glad Jason shared that. Not only CO, but you were in the ISU. Were you, were you also in, um, um, internal affairs. Uh, the ISU was part of the internal affairs. Okay, they, they were separate, but we uh, we worked as ISU officers, but uh, our supervisors were IA. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you shared that because the, one of the purposes of our podcast is criminal justice reform. And uh, so, we want to thank you coming on. We want, want to see how you can highlight the need for reform in, in the culture of the custody of CDCR. And uh, I think our first question would be, how did you decide to get into corrections? I mean, uh, wouldn't you say that you joined in 1987? I actually, I, I, I got out of the Army in 1987, and I joined in 1988. I, uh, I wanted to, you know, had a college degree in criminal justice from Moorpark College, and after that I um, ended up, uh, you know, doing my Army term, and then when I got out, I wanted to get in some type of law enforcement. And the only thing hiring back then was the CDCR, and I went to the Academy, Academy in March of 1988. And my first assignment was at Corcoran State Prison for activation. Wow. So if I'm correct, I think that the Academy is in Elk Grove. It, was it also in Elk Grove back in 1988? It's uh, Galt, Galt, California, which is just probably south of, uh, uh, of Elk Grove. Okay, okay. Off to 99. Okay, yeah. I we, went to a, we, we attended a six-week academy, but now they have to go through a 16-week academy. Okay. What do you think, um, why, why is it longer today? Well, the extensive more, more laws, more hands-on, mm. more weapons training, mm. you know, more uh, just policies and procedures and, and 
and they just want to make sure you know they get in there and, and weed them out who can't make it. What was your original? Six, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Six weeks when when I joined the Department of Corrections in in 1988, the prison expansion was huge. It was just taken off like fire, and they needed prison guards like crazy. I mean, Corcoran was the first prison opening up, and then after that was Avenel, and they just needed prison guards to fill those occupancies. So that's why they were just pushing us through with the six-week academy. When you started out, how many prisons were there? 16. And now there are 35? When I got out, there was 36. 36. So I think one of them got shut down. One is going to be shut down. DVI is coming up on the chopping block. That one's next. What was the major difference between what, when you got into the Department of Corrections, what was the major difference between what you thought it would be like and the reality of what it was? Well, you know, when I got in, I, I thought, wow, this is this is a total different lifestyle that I was raised. I was raised up in a, a, a medium type family, you know, in a real nice neighborhood, nice area. And then stepping foot into a, in a prison system that I've never experienced before in my life. It, it was a big change, you know. And then over the years, there's just stuff, just ongoing issues with the Department of Corrections and things not uh, following policies and procedures and, and uh, just the corruption, the corruption was sort of taken off big time. You know, it started a little bit in 1988 and at Corkin state prison. We had a, I don't know if you guys remember back then they had the gladiator mm. gladiator fights with the, the, the shoe inmates on the yard. And that's when the corruption started happening that I actually seen. It. Would you, would you, would you speak to that? Because I think that when, when I was, when I, I got, I got to Corcoran in, in 1999 in, in November and uh, I heard the stories about it. And I think it, it was just um, being revealed in the news and there was a big investigation. But a lot of our listeners are, are family members of the, of the incarcerated loved ones, those in uh, criminal justice reform movement, restorative justice movement. And maybe they don't know about those stories and some of the things that went on. Could you speak to those? Well, back in 1989, what, 1989, 1990 is when they had the, uh, the gladiator fights where they where staff were betting on uh, inmates, what inmate was going to come off the yard, either dead or alive or, or beaten down. And there was betting going on by uh, prison guards and uh, inmates were going to the yard and some inmates were being shot and set up by, uh, by correctional staff. And they actually made a, they actually came out with a movie called Felon, F-E-L-O-N. It's on DVD. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's called Felon with Bell Kilmer. That's based on a true story. And that, that movie was based on Corcoran State Prison where officer Richard Caruso was a whistleblower with Sergeant Riggs, who I know both very well. So the, the uh, incidents that occurred at, at Corcoran, it's, it's um, fascinating how that story just continues to be told within the walls of institutions. I remember because, uh, you know, I, I fell in uh, 1999. That's the year I committed my crime and was sentenced to life in prison. And the stories about what, what transpired in, in Corcoran were being told about the abuse, about the misconduct of staff and, you know, the gladiator fights all the way up until my release uh, just, you know, six months ago. The, there still is the remnants of, of that, that tragic um, uh, situation. So it's, it's very interesting. Now, now, your book is called The Green Wall. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about what The Green Wall was and your experience with it? Was or is. Or is, sure. Yeah. Because <clears throat> uh, whenever I hear about the Green Wall, um, uh, it seems like it was something of the 90s or the, the 80s or 90s or the early 2000s and that, 
you know, it was it's so, somewhat mythical or, you know, did it really happen? Does it still exist today? Are there, fa- are there are there factions of it that exist today? Those are some of the things that we would like to to bring out and really your story in a whole. But to, to coming back to Jason's question. Well, uh, it all the, the green wall actually occurred um, when I was in the, the systems, 1988, all the way to 1998. Um, I really didn't hear about the green wall. Not too many people talked about it. It wasn't really involved, you know, involved in anything. But in 1998, at Salinas Valley State Prison, we had a uh, a big riot on uh, one of the yards, D yard, in, uh, 1998, November 1998, and when the Southern Hispanic inmates attacked staff on the yard, and uh, several of the inmates, uh, several staff members were were injured and assaulted. Nobody was stabbed, but uh, that's when the the Green Wall actually. Uh, kicked off at Salinas Valley State Prison in 1998, and from what I, you know, from the investigation later on, it's in the book. But later on, it, the uh, the staff at that yard were disrespecting the Southern Hispanic inmates, and they had enough of it. So they uh, they attacked staff on that day because during Thanksgiving, it's a holiday, no administration there, real you know light crew, nothing really goes on. It's like a a neutral. You know, nobody likes to get fight during Thanksgiving because they don't want their dinners taken away from them, all that. So, but it did occur on a D yard. And I was, uh, I, I was uh, working that day, and I responded to the yard where it happened at. And the lieutenant on the yard that day was Lieutenant Lewis. I worked with Pelican Bay. And on the ISU, he, uh, he asked me if I could do the crime scene and take photographs of the inmates prior to them being escorted back to their cells. And when I photographed the inmates in the hobby room at, with their injuries, they didn't have no injuries on their bodies. Uh, some of the prison guards were part of the green wall. They called me an inmate lover. You, what are you going to be a rat on us? You know, I just, they just went off on me. And, uh, I just told them I'm doing my job. You do your job. So after they escorted them back to their housing units, their cell, they tuned them up, beat them down, destroyed their property. And sooner or later, that uh, big investigation occurred with Sacramento on the Green Wall at Salinas Valley State Prison. My uh, first seven years, I, I served at High Desert State Prison, Level 4. And uh, one of the recurring uh, stories uh was actually a training video that many of the COs watched and they called it go time. Apparently there's a, there was an incident on one yard and it was uh, like a ruse um, because there was an issue between staff and the incarcerated people there. And it, it resulted in, you know, a staff assault, a large scale staff assault. And I remember it clearly the, the stories behind it because the, the correctional officers, as they came through, they let it be known. Um, you know, you think, you think that your gang is tough. There's, there's no gang tougher than us. Um, do you find there to be some, some yeah. truth in that sentiment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in High Desert State Prison uh, back then, is my lawyer who represented me, I don't know what year you were at, in High Desert, but there was a certain officer up there that saw wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of the, the Z units or whatever, was like a real high, he saw wrongdoing. So he reported that to his supervisors and, and all the way up to the chain of command to the warden. And his supervisor actually sprayed him with pepper spray and they would, they would, you know, ostracize him and all that and treat him real bad and all that. So basically, you know, he went home one day to his wife and he lived in Susanville. He was a local guy there. And he told his wife, you know, and he had a lot of stress going on. And his wife said, uh, you can hang in there, just hang in there, do the right thing, report it to the union and everything else. So one day he went to work he said, Hey honey, I'm going to go to work. His wife took his child to school and then uh, he didn't actually go to work. He, ended up going up in the mountains and uh, committing suicide. Wow. My, lawyer, my lawyer who represented me represented the widow on that case. 
And, 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 and up there in high desert, the green wall existed. I mean, sure. Was, I was there. I was there know. from 1999 to 2007. So you, that's the, that's the case that he took on. Yeah, uh, one of one of our our good buddies uh, told us that you know that to make a point, they would uh, guy would already be handcuffed. He'd already be handcuffed or hogtied, and then just continue to wring his arm backward till it just broke and and break arms, and then uh, get to the point where they're trying to just make a point, prove prove a point. And my question for my question for you is. Is, are we talking about just a few rogue CEOs here? Are we talking about a more pervasive problem? How high up did this did this go? Was it um, just CEOs, at, at, you know, well, at a couple prisons? Or did it go up to um, uh, staff, administration? Did wardens, were, you think wardens were involved? Well, yeah, after after I test, you know, did my Thanksgiving thing in 1998, uh, next couple of days, officers were wearing turkey pins on their jumpsuits with GW on it to let them know that we had controlled that yard. So the green wall was surely taken off like wildfire at Salinas Valley Prison. They were recruit, recruiting within the ISU. The ISU officers were were the green wall, and they were recruiting other officers on other yards. So in about 2001, I was uh, I was ordered by the warden at the prison to uh, I was ordered by the warden at the prison to write a confidential memorandum of all my knowledge who, what was going on about the green wall. And I told the warden, I said, I have to work with these guys, sir. I really do. I have to work with these guys. I, you know, they're, they're my peers and I have to see them every day. He says, well, Officer Vodica, I really need a report. I'm basically ordering you to write a report. So I contacted my good friend, Joe Renoso, who, who I worked with at Pelican Bay, and he was my squad sergeant. He was working SSU at the time. You probably know what SSU is. And I, I contacted him and told him the situation. He said, hey, just write your report, stamp it confidential like I trained you. And then the next Monday morning, I gave it to the warden. You know, not knowing about two months later, I was in my vehicle, Sally Port, and here comes these guys down from ISU that were the green wall, you know, and I'm like, what's going on here? They entered the Sally Port, and they came up to me, and, and they uh, they quoted verbatim out of my memorandum uh, what I wrote to the warden. So I said, how, how, how can these guys see this kind of stuff? Wow. You know, th- th- this is not privy to them. Mm-hmm. So the warden threw me under the bus, you know, and then after that, I, uh, I, I just lost it. I got a hold of ISU sergeants who I knew real well, Lieutenant Lewis. And, and then they told me to go meet with OIG. The OIG came to my house that night and interviewed me for four hours. And then two weeks later, they came storming into the prison, unloaded all the ISU officers out of their unit, told the warden to step out of his office. They collected all the evidence, physical evidence and everything like that. And they pursued their investigation. And so when I, when I, I said, Hey, to one of the OIG guys, I said, you guys set me up, you know, these, these guys, are, they know I ratted you guys out and they came here on the institution. These, these, so my phone started blowing up, calling me a rat snitch. You're done, Officer Vodica, you're dead man walking. You know, you're through from the Department of Corrections. So that Friday night, uh, Joe Renoso, special agent, and he called his bosses in Sacramento and they, they moved me overnight to another prison. I mean, Friday night, I, I was told to report Monday morning at Pleasant Valley State Prison, you know to get me out of Salinas Valley state prison to this whole thing going on. And it's all in the book. You know, I mean, it's everything I'm talking about a little bit more in the book. Sure. And, and then after that, I um, went to Pleasant Valley state prison. I would, I got there and nobody knew really knew all about me until later on this, uh, uh, old Lieutenant came and said, Hey, who are you writing on now? I mean, and you know, he, he was joking around, but I think he found out all about me, what was going on. Cause that same day, I had to re- respond to an alarm on the housing at Pleasant Valley. I was a yard officer, and when I ran through there and I hit the rotunda, and the officers behind me stopped at the door. They didn't want to come in. 
and there was a fight going on in the day room between the Hispanics and the blacks. And there was a guy standing next to the, the guard gate, the grill gate, ready to clobber me when I go in because the control booth officer, he was great. He didn't want any part of this. He said, Vodka, stop, Vodka, stop. Don't go in, don't go in. And I stopped. And, and, that, and, and then he laid the whole day room floor down and racked his mini 14. He laid the day room down. And then I went and I, I told the sergeant lieutenant, you guys set me up. This is wrong. I went to the chief deputy, walked up to the chief deputy board in one of his offices. You, you set me up and you, you knew what was going on. You didn't protect me. And that was my last day before I testified in the Senate hearings in 2004. It's crazy because you would think that, you know, people who have taken an oath to uphold the law, protect, um, would obey the law themselves, right? Would follow the rules. Um, but as your story... Yeah, these guys were they had gang signs. They had the GW. If you I don't know if you can see that, but they threw the W up. That's what they did. The W, the wall. Sure. The, the W. And then they had 723 on their bodies. They tattooed a 723. The seventh is G. The 23rd is W. So that's what they called themselves, the 723 or the GW. And was that a thing of the 90s and 2000s or did, do you believe it still exists today? It still exists today. It's happening at RJE, San Diego. I mean, Donovan. the Greenwald, yeah, the Donovan, it just submerged again down there a year ago. I was contacted by a lawyer down there who was representing some inmates in, a, in the same thing. And, and all the inmates were telling me the Greenwall, the Greenwall is doing this. And the officers down there were doing the same thing. And not too long ago, what? About a month ago? Probably a month ago, I had a big uh, incident on one of the yards where several staff members were injured and taken to the hospital by the Southern Hispanic inmates. And, and it has to do, you know, I mean, has to be something as part of the green wall because uh, they're, they're using that freely. So DJ, if we could just peel back like another layer of the onion and kind of go into like how this even occurs, you have some unique insights as a former CEO as to like the way that incarcerated people are perceived. What are some of your thoughts about like how this even comes about? Um, and kind of just to lead into it a little bit, what comes to mind for me is the study that they did in Stanford in the 60s. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, with the students, where they designated some students to be guards and some students to be um, incarcerated people. And within six days, the, the experiment failed because the, the, the treatment of the, you know, the guards was so poor that the, the students who were the incarcerated people were representing the incarcerated people. They quit. So what are your thoughts and your insights as a former CEO um, you know, former uh, ISU member as to the thinking that goes behind being a correctional officer that may contribute to something such as the green wall uh, coming about. Power. It's all about power struggle. I mean, these guys wore a badge. We wore a badge on our chest and it's all about power. And and they had the backing of the warden at the prison. You know, some wards didn't do this. They didn't allow it at their institutions, but you know, the inmates were taking control of the prison and they were running the prison the way they wanted to. And, and the warden said, president said, hey, I'm not letting these guys do it. We'll put fear and intimidation to these inmates. I want my whole prison back. So it's all about power. I mean, yeah. I mean, we were we were the badge. We were the, the thing. Who who are the court's going to believe? If if we if if we set set you up or plant a weapon in your cell or do something criminally, and and then we, we they do the documentation, the paperwork, and then it goes to the district attorney's office. Yeah. Who are they going to believe? Uh, I mean. Sure, I mean, then it goes to a jury. Then it, then it goes to a jury, and you got all the evidence and facts. Right. And then, and then, then that inmate's going to get more time. And sure. they, these guys, these guys on the green wall, set up inmates for more time. And they actually, yeah. they actually went down to level one yard at Salinas, and they were beat down level one inmates for no reason. They just go down there to 
to mess with them. I don't want to use that bad language on there, but sure. they'd go down there and mess with them and tune them up. Do you think what happened with the green wall uh, is similar to what we're seeing in the streets with police officers today in general? Oh yeah. It's, but they have their own little cliques, the LA County Sheriff and all that. They have their little gangs down there, but it, it, everything needs to be weeded out. You know, it's, it's, it, reform is huge right now in, right. in the United yep. States and in California, Prison reform, it has to happen. It has to start with inside the prison reform. And it has to start with the guards. The sure. guards are the ones that make the incarcerated hard to program or to, I, to, I gotta, to I gotta, reform. I got a question for you along that line. On the way when we were driving over here, uh, Jason brought up a quote by Abraham Lincoln. He said, uh, Lincoln once said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And you're talking about power and how, how the misuse of power, the abuse of power, and so my question is, you know, if you were, you were a person of salute, um, if you, if you, you know, like we were asked the other day by the director of a C- DRP, a CDCR as a director of rehabilitative program, if you could wave, wave a magic wand and fix the system, uh, what would you do? And I ask you that same question today, if you know, the, the power is going to be continue to be given. So what would you do to, as what, what are some of the solutions that you have? If, if, you know, if they're doing criminal activity in there, which they do, you know, the Greenwall members, they need to be dealt with. You know, after I testified in the Senate hearings in 2004 in a packed courthouse uh, downtown Sacramento when Schwarzenegger was a, the governor, I testified for two hours in an open stand. I mean, it, nobody knew about the Greenwall. The senators, both senators had me in the stand. My story hit the AP, Associated Press. And shortly after that, I had to go off the grid and hide in hiding for six months due to everything going on. But it's, it's the power. I mean, if they can weed out the bad correctional staff on the spot, weed them out, get them out of there training, you know, get, get those, those individual out of the prison. And then you'll, then you'd have a normal prison and a normal reform, but they have, it has to start from the top. It has to start from the top all the way down. It has to start at the director's level all the way down to the bottom. We're not going to tolerate it. After they did what happened to me, I changed policies and procedures with the department of corrections where all staff had to sit through eight hours of mandatory training about the Greenway at Greenwall and the code of silence. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd also changed a bill, Senate bill, Senator Spear and Jackie, uh, Jackie Spear and Gloria Romero were the uh, senators. And I changed a, a bill for whistleblowers to come forward in the department of corrections to fit you know, So they won't fear retribution or retaliation. Well, I don't know if they're following that. I mean, there's paperwork, there's documentation where it says zero tolerance. They're not going to tolerate any members of the Greenwall or anybody who break adheres to the code of silence. But then again, guys, there's one thing they, they got on their back. They got a powerful union. Sure. The, C- the CCPA is powerful. The CC- I asked the C- CCPA, the chapter president, Mike Jimenez, I asked for his help face-to-face. And you know what he looked at me? He looked at me and he looked at my, my badge on my, my jumpsuit. He goes, oh, you're Ostrovodica. I've been advised not to talk to you. And he walked away from me. Wow. They, they, they protect the dirty cops. And they're the largest union in the country. The country and, and they're the most powerful and they got lawyers and they got the money. They got everything to back them up. And, and, and like I said, they didn't back me up. I was a, a union paying member for 16 years. What were some of the All other right. consequences that you experienced from uh, coming out with your story? Um, I had a, an experience. Did you get fired? No, I didn't get terminated or fired. I was on, uh, I couldn't write this book until after my litigation was over with the department of corrections. But I had, I had an incident with my son we were attending a past robos. My parents, well, my, my parents are both deceased, but my, um, I was attending a, a mid to see my mom and dad in Pismo Beach with my little boy. He was five years old at the time. 
we went to the Mid-State Fair in Paso Robles. He wanted to go to the fair. And then when we came out that night, we were leaving the fair, and a, a, a sergeant who was part of the Green Wall at Salinas jumped up and ran at me and started yelling at me, and Monica dropped the case, don't be a rat. And just on and on and on. And my son saw it, and he startled, and he was crying. Mm. So I had to get my little boy out of there real quick. You know, he, he saw stuff that he didn't even know his dad was going through. And, and that shouldn't happen. No, it shouldn't. DJ, what was it that prompted you to do the right thing and and whistleblow? When so many people I, around you were just going with the flow, what was it that you, that inside of you said, I need to do something different? My morals, the way I was brought up with my parents. And, and when I went to the academy, I took, I took an oath. I took an oath to protect and serve and, and, and all that. I didn't take an oath to adhere to the code of silence. I, I didn't do that. I mean, it's all about humanity and, and doing the right thing. You know, we, the courts, the courts are the ones that sentence the, the incarcerated and all that. We were there just to watch over them, protect them, make sure they do their time and they do it right. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, what I want to say is uh, it's, and maybe Jay, Jay can piggyback off of this and you as well, DJ, you know, it, it's to me, it starts off with some of the simple things like ha- the media having access to go in there. You know, the media has to get specific permission. And, and maybe you know about the days when, when, when this started with the, the media embargo and they can't go in there. And from my experience of, of being in there for 21 years, that everything is um, calculated by, by them. Like, for instance, when they do the one year inspection, when Sacramento's going to come and they're going to look and see, you know, if these guys have hand sanitizer. If there is toilet paper inside of the bathrooms, if there's a, um, a paper towels after you walk out of a bathroom, if the bathrooms are clean in there. And, and, and I remember there were never paper towels. There were never toilet paper. There were never hand sanitizers. But the two weeks before this inve- um, inspection was going to start, all of a sudden they would you know pack the place. They would bleach the walls and they would have everybody clean and, and act like everything looks all good in there. And then uh, and for, and once the inspection passed, it was it would all disappeared again. And so um, I think a lot of the, the, the stories that you're telling on, on a macro level of some of the extreme violence, planting of uh, drugs, the planting of of uh, weapons on people, breaking arms, um, gang banging by by COs. A lot of times that's not believed by the general public because they believe, well, how could they do that? They're 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 cops, they're police officers, they're, they're good people. And if, if there was a way to, um, and it may be with Donovan, Donovan, I hear that they're, they're going to have the officers there where, um, uh, body, uh, body cameras. And if they put body cameras on them, they would probably see that they're not under the distress, the amount of distress that, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not bad things that go on in prison, riots happen and things like that. But, um, largely some, some days the, the, the hardest thing to do is to get up and unlock a door four times a day or whatever it is. So um, what are your thoughts about um, the general public being able to see what's really going on in there and their ideas that, oh, come on, it can't be that bad. There's not really gangbanging by COs going on. You're right. You know, the, talking about when there was an inspection coming down from Sacramento and, and all that by the higher ups. Yeah, they they knew about it right away. And the warden put it out there. Let's clean up the unit. Let's get everything. Let's make it look spotless. You know, and that's what they did. But yeah, you're right. After they, they left, they went back to normal. You know, they, they kept toilet paper from inmates. They kept showering stuff you know they just treated them like inhumane you know they just didn't they didn't care and uh with the media the, the media is not allowed inside the behind the walls that's just recently in the last few years like national Geographic, uh this lady named lisa lang i think and all that she's done 
stuff inside the prison, all that. But they're only no, they only see what a limited stuff. They don't see what I exposed. They don't. See, they don't. You know, I wish the inmates would come up and say to them, the media would go, "Hey, you know what? We're 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 getting beat down by these guys of the Green Wall members. Talk talk the negative stuff to the media. That's what they need to hear. So when they when it does go back on the street, then the media says, "Hey, this inmate approached me and said." These members of the Green Wall tune my, me up and my celly up, and then that gets to the media, and then the media gets out to the street. So then people know what's going on behind the walls. I mean, they, that's the only way they're going to find out. Sure. The, only, the other way they're finding out right now is in my book. The, the book, it, it tells all. Sure. So, you know, part of the, the reason why we have Oh, this- real quick, real mm-hmm. quick. They banned my book from going to the prison. They won't allow my book to go into CDCR. Oh, oh really? They banned it. And there's nothing in there. I don't know if you guys have read it. There's nothing in there that says how to escape, how to use weapons, all sure. that. It just talks about the truth. I'll, I'll crush all their staff treat inmates. So well, we have a, we have a friend, uh, actually our colleague. Um, it's really serious. I mean, to have a book like yours in their cell, you could end up in the shoe for five years. We have a, one of our colleagues, he was reading a, a book about um, uh, the solid ad five. Um, and they came in there and then next thing you know, they tagged him as a, as a prison gang member, mm-hmm. uh, and they put him in the shoe for eight or nine years. Nine years. And, yep. Yeah. So, so DJ, you know, part of the purpose of, of this podcast is to help uh, create awareness and contribute to a conversation that helps to possibly redefine the purpose of prison. Yep. And, you know, one of our assertions is that up until now, up until very recently, the purpose of prison has been to punish, um, Something I learned after uh, serving over 20 years in prison when I came out, and it was a steep learning curve, is that in the restorative justice movement, um, there's there's a real uh, sensitivity to what they call people-centered language. And, you know, to me, it's saying, it sounds it seemed normal, it sounded normal to refer to myself as an inmate. And now there's this new movement of, like, calling people you know, people, you know, returning citizens, incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people. My question to you is, you know, being steeped in that culture for so many years as I was and Richard was, do you think that the labels that we place on each other, like, you know, as inmate or inmate Brian, inmate Morales, part of the problem. Do, do you think that that might be part of the problem in the way that officers think about their wards? the people who they're charged to keep safe? Is, is, it, is it a way that they can possibly continue to objectify and dehumanize people and feel okay about themselves at the end of the day? Yeah, because that's what they're taught in the academy and that's not what trained in the academy. You know, you don't call them Mr. Smith. Hey, Mr. Smith or Mr. Morales, it's, uh, it's inmate, come here. Or, mm-hmm. or it's, like, it's like belittling them, you know? Sure. Where I, I think that that culture should be changed. They should be called by their, their like, Mr. Smith or Mr. Uh, uh, Marino, they should be called by their la- Mister and their last name, not inmate or convict or whatever. You know, I mean, right. it makes 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 the officer feel good. It makes the the incarcerated feel good. It, it needs to change in that way. I don't, I don't think we should put a number on you guys. I mean, we already know the numbers. Sure, you know, it should yeah. be they should call you like Mister Myerless or Mister Payne or what. That it should be that Mister or Hey Payne, come over here. Not call you by your first name. Call you by your last name because right. we're okay, yeah, they, I think that's degrading. Sure. I really think that's degrading. I think they should call you by your last name. They, the, the, the inmates call us, hey, hey Officer Vodica, they don't call us by our first name. Right. They call us by our last name. Right. And that yeah. should be in return the same way. 
And that's, that's a culture that needs to change within. And it's, it's, it's just such an interesting thing to watch. Like, you know, literally days before my release, um, when I found out that I was going home because I was you know, blessed and fortunate to be, have my sentence commuted by the governor of California, you know, the, the way that I was treated by many of the officers just shifted, just a, a quantum shift. And it was no longer like, oh, there's that, there's that inmate. It was like, oh, there's, there's Bryant or Mr. Bryant. Like, oh, okay. And then to see the shift of, of formerly incarcerated people who actually are, have the good fortune of re-entering prisons at like delivering programs, the way they're treated is just so different than when they're wearing that blue. And, and I just think it, it, it's, it's, it, it's revealing of, of how many people, um, you know, correctional officers and maybe society at large view the incarcerated population as if they are less than. So it, well, you're, you, you, got, you guys got to understand something. You guys are human. I'm human. Yeah. You know, humans make mistakes. Sure. And mistakes need to be punished. But you're human. I mean, that's what we, we all need to be treated equally. You're human. And that disrespect or, or belittle somebody. And that's really that's the big key is human, human. And that's really what Jason is saying is that on, even on the front end, uh, in the, um, in the, uh, academy, if they were to, if they were to start off by with that, you know, these, they are not inmates. They are people who committed a crime. They broke the law, but our perspective is not going to be that they are people who are in there going to perpetuate criminality. If you, if you look, continue to look at them that way, then, then, then uh, you're going to keep on getting the same results that, that we've been getting for the last 30, 40, 50 years. But if you look at them as somebody who, who that was what they did, that's not who they are. We're going to, we're going to believe different for them. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to even speak to them in a way where, Hey, are, are, are you getting an education? Are you, um, are you taking any of the programs? What are you getting out of the programs? If they didn't objectify us as people that are supposed to be there for the rest of our lives, I remember being found suitable for the board. Well, let me finish my last point. If they didn't, if they didn't have that perspective on us, like, oh, that's inmate, that creates an us, creates an us versus them, and um, yeah, sure, we're there because we committed a crime, and uh, you know, we're society, there are laws in society says that we should be taken out of society for a time, and we were, and, and we and we paid dearly by being there. But if the and, and the purpose of prison in, in California is to punish, you know, it says in the Title Fifteen. In other countries, the purpose is to rehabilitate. And if your purpose is to rehabilitate and bring someone out to society, because we're going to get out. And what type of what type of community member do you want? What type of neighbor do you want? Do you want someone you've been calling inmate for the last 20 years? So if you do, that's what you're going to get. And you want someone to come, come back out, a worse criminal, a career criminal. There are people that go in and they come out, they come out that way. And, but there are those who go in and they care, truly care about their uh, transformation. For me, it started after uh, about the first um, 15 to 18 months after being in. I said, I got to change my life. I got to make it. I got to I got to become someone new with the help of God, with the help of family. I was able to do that. But I'll tell you, after being found suitable in the board hearing and only two percent of those sentenced to life are found suitable after their first board hearing. And after my first board hearing, I went back because I was at Solidad for 18 years and two months. And so I knew a lot of the COs that have been there, I've seen them go from being a CO, you know, the first week to becoming lieutenants or sergeants or, and captains. And, and I remember going to some of them that I worked with for years and saying, Hey man, I got found suitable. You know, I'm going to be going home. And, and I had to wait another year. Most people got to wait five or six months, but I got to wait. I got to, I'm going to, I'm going to be going home. And I expected them to be like, right on, man. Like, you know, I'm, you know, they're not supposed to shake hands or whatever, but like, if I could shake your hand, I would, or, or man, I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. These are people that, that knew me, but, but 
I mean, out of 20 of them, probably I got that reaction from like one. And I just seen this like glare over their eyes. And they talk about us being institutionalized. I see them institutionalized in a way where I'm so objectified in their mind, they couldn't comprehend. Oh, you're supposed to get out of here one day. Oh, I'm happy for you to get out of here one day. That's right. That's great. No, it was, it was like as if they believed that I was meant to be there and I wasn't. You know, we're talking about that. You know, when I was, I was a shoe officer, shoe kitchen officer for four years in the shoe in Corcoran. I had a, a killer inmate crew. Inmates on the yard on CR were coming up to me. It's Vodka, can I work for you? Can we work for you? We got a great kitchen crew. All my kitchen crew race, black, white, Mexican, Border Brothers, all that, love working for me, me and my other partner. And you know what? We always told the inmates, great job, good job. And you know what? Uh, every now and then, every once in a while, I would give them a, a, what's called a 128G, a good chrono. I would write up a good chrono for that inmate because he did a great job for me in the kitchen. It's those guys that made me look good. I wasn't the one making them look good. Those guys made me look good. And they deserve that. And I, and I wrote up a lot of good chronos for inmates that deserved it. And you're, you're right. I mean, you, you took a big jump and you're going and you, you were 18 years. Now you're getting to go home and yeah, you guys have to be recognized on that. You know, and that's, that's a culture that needs to change also. Yeah. Thank you, DJ. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you, do you ever regret your decision of, of be, being a whistleblower? No, it's tough. What do you think of that uh, term whistleblower too? Uh, yeah. Whistleblower is just like another thing basically being a rat or a snitch you know i mean just a a better professional term is being a whistleblower but you know i mean if i had to do it all again i'd do it again you know i mean i saw a lot of wrongdoing going on and i believed in my superiors to protect me and all that and not throw me under the bus and and, uh, sure enough they threw me under the bus and it's all in the book yeah, I mean, like I said, guys, it's it's the book is powerful. I mean, there's and, and no there's no book out there written against the CDCR. I think I think you said it well earlier um, when we when I asked you the question about like why you chose to go against the grain. You said your morals, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's just uh, so important to at the end of the day be able to look in the mirror and say, you know, I did the right thing. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I went up against. I was one officer against 30,000 officers. That's how many were in custody staff. And I, I stood alone. I had, I had some good friends in the Department of Corrections I, that I considered friends. When I blew the whistle, guys, they, they got nothing to do with me. Yeah. Except for one guy, Joe Renoso, he's been by my set for 30-plus years. And, and my lawyer and then my, my wife. And I met my wife when this is all going on, this whole ordeal. You know, I had to bury my father. And my, my father's last words to me were, you need, you need to write this book. And that was his last words to me before I wrote the book. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to share the story. The story needs to be told. Um, we're glad you told it. We're glad you told it. And you're obviously moved by your dad's words. I think about my grandpa who once told, he was my mentor all my life. And he said that, he said, son, when you learn to do the right thing to do, because it's the right thing to do, you'd be able to make a difference in this world. And when I use the word whistleblower, it just hit me that that's also language that is derogatory. And I remember Dr. King once saying, injustice any, anywhere is injustice everywhere. And so we need to do away with terms like that and start um, louding uh, people who take a stand for righteousness, 
Just take a stand for justice and do what is right because it's the right thing to do. Take a stand for responsibility. I mean, what, what you did was the responsible thing to do. Like you said, you took an oath. You took an oath to serve and protect. And there were people just recklessly violating that oath. And you, you made a responsible decision to report it. Some of those Green Vault members came from Soledad. Most of the warden used to work at Soledad, and then he became a warden at Salinas Valley. But he, he, all of those guys came from uh, Soledad, and then they came over from Soledad to Salinas Valley. And they wanted control of the prison. The warden wanted control of the prison. He didn't want a, this prison overtaken, so he wanted control of the prison. That's why he told these guys, go put fear and intimidation on these inmates. You got my backing. Hey, DJ, uh, we got a little... Uh, quick technical difficulty here, but we're going to keep going. I wanted to ask you, how did you end up coming before the Senate? Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. How I, I, when I came to the Senate, what happened was when I, um, uh, we were following a case, uh, Powers Garcia case at a Pelican Bay. There was, uh, it was being tried in the federal courts up in San Francisco with judge Henderson, senior, senior judge and uh, John Hager and they were prosecuting these two uh, two individuals. And then one of the senators, Senator uh, Gloria Romero, came to one of the hearings, and she was absurd how the director of corrections was lying on the stand to the federal judge. And then she uh, tapped my lawyer on the back and said, hey, uh, aren't you Lanny Tron? You represent Mr. Botica on his whistleblower case? Said, yeah, we're having a government oversight committee in a couple of weeks. We'd like to subpoena him to this hearing. We want to, we want him to come to the state capitol and share what's going on with the prison system called the Green Wall. And that's what I did on January 21st, 2004. I, I walked into the uh, uh, state capitol into their big auditorium flanked by two highway patrols for my protection and Joe Renoso and walked in there, opened the double doors and it was a packed house. And then I ended up going down there and swearing in front of the two senators and telling my whole story. And that's how I, that's how I went to the Senate hearings. How was your story received? What's that? How was your story received by them? Do you feel believed? Oh, yeah. The, 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 the two senators want to change. I mean, they were very upset against it. There were this government oversight committee on the Department of Corrections. They were upset big time what was going on at Folsom. There was stuff going on at Folsom State Prison with riots and all that and there, mm-hmm. and how they the guards were setting up the mates over there and not getting the backing by their administration. And it was a big hearing. But they, they said my, my, my hearing, my, my testing was huge. Huge, because it's talking about everybody in the state of California who wear that uniform. The green wall is, for people who are listening, is they, they call themselves the green wall because we wear green jumpsuits, and that's how they identify themselves with the GW, the green wall. We're the wall coming onto the yard. When these green wall members walked onto the yard, the ISU, the yard got dead quiet, and everybody uh, on the yard watched them where they were walking to, because yeah. they were going they were going into that yard, yard for a purpose. They weren't going on the yard just to walk around. They, they were going to set up another inmate for more time. Oh, well, when ISU still walks the line, people get quiet. Sure. They wear black now. Sure. Well, the people who are up to to no good, <laughs> typically. Like, <laughs> yeah, but I still feel a little, I wasn't doing nothing wrong. I still feel a little. Sure, yeah. Like, well, like, see, so, and the green walls, so, so our uniforms were the, you know, the, the khaki shirts, the green pants, if you wanted to wear that, or the full green jumpsuit. Right. DJ, what are your thoughts about the direction in which the department is headed today? Oh man, it's tough. Um, with everything going on with, you know, um, 
with the corruption still going on behind the wall, mm-hmm. like things need to change. I mean, they, they have to do a better job of, of tightening that up and, you know, and, and also looking at the uh, inmates uh, central files and, and these guys that are in for like petty stuff like that. And, you know, like the, the release of a lot of, a lot of convicts are being released out of the department of corrections. It's due to the COVID, but then again, they're looking at their files and, instead of them give them more time, you know, just reduce the crimes. You know, not everybody can come home. Not everybody can come home. I mean, right. guys are in for, you know, first degree murder or, or whatever that, you know, they, they realize they can't come home, you know, but the ones that had the lesser crimes in there, like the three strikes law, I, 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 I'm not a believer in the three strikes law, especially when people get the third strike for stealing a candy bar mm-hmm. or, or, you know, they got to reevaluate, reevaluate the three strikes law in California. Sure. What do you think? What do you think can be done about the culture of correctional officers and the way that they view incarcerated people? It needs to change from the beginning, from the academy. Sure, that's what they need to teach it from the academy, from the get go. Because once once you get out of the academy, you come to the your prison or yard, you lose all that in the academy. They need to instill that at the academy, at the academy, because every officer has to go through that academy. Right. You, when you get hired with the Department of Corrections, you get hired. You just don't walk into a prison and start. You go sure. to the academy. Sure. They need to teach that get go at, at the academy. What was what was the general like sentiment? Like I, I guess not even the general general sentiment. What was the specific uh, marching orders that you were given back in 1988 in your relations with incarcerated people? Like was it, it was you know they 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 told us just like you know in 1980 you, you address an inmate is an inmate or a convict. Mm-hmm. You know when I came into the prison system, I, if I saw a B number or a C number. A D number, that's what I came in. Those guys were considered convicts to me. Mm-hmm. Now, when I saw EHs in the higher higher alphabet, you know, younger guys coming in, those are basically inmates to me. What were those? I mean, what, what was the distinction between the two? Uh, and the, the, the younger and older. Okay. I mean, you, you got you got guys that are 45, 50, 60 years old. They've been down for 25, 30 years old. They're not an inmate. They're a convict. They 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 know they know how to play the game. You got these inmates coming in from the county jail. These youngsters coming in. They want to just disrupt the program for the convicts. These convicts want a program. They want a yard. They want to go to the yard. But the inmates are coming up. They disrupt the program, then they lock everything down. Mm-hmm. And then the convicts and everybody else are, are locked down and get punished for it. So the, you, you never received when you were in the academy and in, through your 16 years of uh, service in the CDCR, you never received any type of direction to actually, you know, be a facilitator of, of program, of like counseling, of rehabilitation for the incarcerated population? No, also, also we were told is rights, rights and respects. That was a, they drew them. Give, you have the right, give them rights and respect, you'll get the respect back. But, but when it calls about um, uh, uh, rehabilitation, you know, they started taking the program, the program was away from the convicts and inmates. They took away the, the PIA, the auto body, the, uh, all the stuff they were learning on the backside of the fence, you know, learning about different trades. Well, the money and the budget got cut and everything got cut. So their programs got cut. So now they don't have nothing to do. They just have to walk on the yard and, and lift weights, socialize and all that. And the education, education is a big thing, but where's the re- rehabilitation when they take all these programs away from, from the incarcerated? Sure. Hey DJ, you, you said before the show started that we were the first um, uh, people in California that were able to interview you. And uh, I was curious, why is that? Because, I mean, my story's been out there sort of taken off a little bit here and there. But uh, as far as a prison podcast from two uh, 
former uh, uh, incarcerated inmates, or excuse me, incarcerated people. Um, I don't have a problem sharing that. Now, you know, if I, if, if I was still active as a correctional officer right now and, and I'm still active, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation because yeah. that, that's, that's part of the, you know, being a full-time correctional officer. We weren't allowed to talk to the incarcerated on the outside. Right. Hey, DJ. So I, I, don't, I, ha- I don't have that right. I'm, I'm retired. I'll speak <laughs> freely on my story. That's right. Hey, I noticed that your book came out in 2009 and here we are in 2020 and, and you're still you're sharing your book and it seems like you're still passionate about it. I mean, uh, when was the last time you were a CEO and why are you still so passionate about it? Uh, I'd love to hear that answer. You know, I mean, I, I want change. I want change. I want change in the, in the Department of Corrections. I want uh, reform. I, I want not just California. I want it all over the United States. I mean, there has to be change, you know, that's, that's why I'm so passionate. I want, I want, and I want everybody to know what goes behind the walls of the Department of Corrections, you know, is not like just a walk in the cake and easy for people, people don't really want to know. The outside world, the outside public really need to know what goes behind those walls and how the corruption is and where, where it goes and, and who starts it and, and that, you know, I mean, it, it was published in 2009 now we're 220, you know, I mean, I've never been challenged in the book. The book's powerful. I mean, nobody's ever challenged me because I have all the evidence to support the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything in the book is, I got all the evidence to support it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing. Thank you for being on the show today. Uh, uh, DJ, uh, it, you know, what, what comes to my mind right now is a story of something that I, that I experienced in there. And it was very difficult to take a stand for what was right. Uh, there was someone who came to me at one time in there and shared that a chaplain was, uh, had, uh, came on to him, kissed him. And, um, I, it was just crazy to hear that. And through a small investigation of our own, we realized that, uh, this guy had been doing this to people for a long time and he had done it to many people. And I was scared about it. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm uh, a little nervous even telling the story right now, but I was scared. Uh, and a, a few of us who, who, who decided to take a stand, we went to ISU. And the ISU on the surface seemed like they, they recorded it. They wanted to listen. They, they wanted to know the story. And this guy was, was, a, was a, a, a straight predator. And the pe- person who was supposed to be caring for the sheep was preying on the sheep and went to ISU. And, and um, next thing you know, he, he disappeared. But within a month, they came and handcuffed us and put us in the hole. And um, it was as if we did something wrong. You know, he, what happened was, ended up telling them we're all lying. And, um, and, and, and it was just us, our word against theirs. And it reminds me of also the injustice of the 115 system. And it says your word, uh, your word against theirs. And I've heard so many officers, so many sergeants and lieutenants said, well, I got to back up my staff. Sounds like you're telling the truth, but I got to back up my staff. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a major issue in there. I, I, while we were in the hole, Myself, our fam- I, I wrote um, uh, family members and friends, and they wrote letters to the director of CDCR, Matthew Cade at the time, and the warden came and got us out of there, and it was all swept under the rug. But I think, I think because of the culture that we walk into, um, maybe not because of, but there is a culture of there uh, amongst the COs that if they do something to us, most likely it's not going to get found out and nobody's going to care. And then also that, that, that culture uh, would, um, goes downhill to, to those who are incarcerated. And next thing you know, uh, well, we better not say nothing either. And, um, all that does is, uh, it's like a quote I, sh- I share uh, sometimes. If you keep on doing what you have been doing, you're going to keep on getting what you have been getting. And if we want transformation, we've got to change what we've been doing. 
And it uh, sounds like, um, sounds like that, that's something that you're passionate about. And I want to come back to that, to that question again. You talked about it starting in training at, at, um, at the, at the, what do you call them? The academies. Um, um, what would it take to have some type of outside organization come in and do training either on people centered language or on new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing people. We, we've studied in, uh, in other institutions in, in Europe that it doesn't just take a GED to become a, a correctional officer. They go to college, they, they get training on, on, um, I don't know if it's alcohol and drug counseling, but they get different types of training. So I want to know what your thoughts on that. Well, my thoughts are what you guys are doing. It's a great cause. And you guys, you guys need to go to the Academy and, and, and teach the officers, Hey, we're human. We, we don't, we want to be called by our first, our, our last name. Let's change this culture right now. I mean, you guys would be a great example to go start that pilot program. Um, you know, that, that's that, what idea. it needs to be done. I mean, it needs to come from you guys. And if you guys can get that approval through up to a higher up, you sure. guys should go Proximity. share that in the academy. I mean, that, that's where it needs. That's where it needs to start. We would definitely because, be open to that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, we would. You know, like, Sign us something up. You guys, something you guys need to look into. You know, because anybody can come in and talk about you know rights and respects. You know, some some guy that's you know doesn't even exist with the Department of Corrections. But if they're coming from people like you, right, that yeah. opens the eyes to a lot of people. Sure. Jason, yesterday we were having a conversation about proximity. And uh, would you speak to that, Tom? Sure. So, with this context? Sure. So, you know, there's been some, a lot of evidence, a lot of research done on like the effectiveness of different leadership. And um, the studies have come back almost conclusively that the most effective leaders are the ones who are most proximate or closest to the problem at hand. So, Based on what you said, your feedback, you know, DJ, it, it is uh, people like us and people like you um, who have the, the best solutions for problems because we have lived it. You know, you, you walked the line for 16 years. Richard rocked it for 21. I walked it for, for 20 years. We're the people that have the solutions to the problems that are going on inside of CDCR. And I just want to say, you know, you, you, you shared that we are the first podcast that you've done in California. You're the first uh, former member of law enforcement that we've had on our show. Yeah. And, and it's, it's collaborative, uh, thoughtful conversations like this that, that really produce solutions, solutions from people who have lived it, from people who know uh, what's going on and what's wrong. Uh, we're the ones who are going to find the answers to these problems. And, you know, right now, there, yeah, there is. There's a screenplay being written right now. I mean, I, I'm freely to talk about it. And, and right now, there's a possibility of a motion picture based on my story. Um, it's a powerful story and it needs to be told and you guys need to share your, your stuff and what you guys have been doing in your cause, you know? Yeah. Thank you, DJ. Hey, um, uh, Jason and I, um, we work for an organization called crop organization. You can look us up on uh, cropoorganization.org and uh, a little bit about our story, our purpose, our, our, our vision is to work together with others, to collaborate, to restore lives, to restore lives in Hill communities. The prison post is sponsored by the crop organization and uh, maybe there's some uh, way to, for us to collaborate in the future. Until then, uh, where can people find your book? You can find the, my book on um, uh, Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com. Amazon.com is probably the biggest powerful uh, marketing out there on the book, and Barnes and & Noble. And my publisher is iUniverse uh, out of Indiana. So basically, if you just Google my name, you know, Google my name, and I'm all, I've got so many stories on the Internet. And, and where the book can be found. Okay, DJ. 
And uh, like I said, I ordered your book. Uh, and I'll do a shame a shameless plug right here. We also uh, published a book uh, called Men Built for Others. And we tell uh, stories, uh, transformational stories, 11 transformational stories of, of men that were sentenced to life in prison and, and left being completely new person, people. And all of them are now free. And um, I'll be doing some interviews, some uh, podcast interviews with Jason and some of them on our show. We've already interviewed one, uh, James Willock. And um, and I, I would like you to see that. And I would like you to also, um, I just want to encourage you, invite you to think about what we talked about today, about people-centered language. I know sometimes it's a force of habit. I don't think that you, that, um, that you um, have, when you use the term inmate, that I don't think that you mean... Um, uh, to, um, to take away dignity from us or our humanity from us. It seems the opposite, but, um, on the other hand, other people, other people do. And, and to consider, you know, that, that, um, um, the same men that were incarcerated or women that were incarcerated or the people that were, that were, um, you know, wearing blue, um, because, uh, that language, uh, you know, does some, it even does something to us. We come out and we're thinking like, I, I was an inmate, you know, I was other than, and I really wasn't. I'm just a human being who who committed who made, committed a crime. I was incarcerated for a time, and now I'm not. So, uh, hey, man, thank you for coming on our show today. Really appreciate you uh, coming you on the prison your post. Story. Uh, thank you for stepping up and and doing the right thing when no one else would. Um, we really appreciate. You know, that. And, and, and once you guys read the book and you and you want to have another interview, and because there's a lot more detail in that book that you guys probably want to share to your listeners and viewers. Sure. And. Uh, Feel free to get a hold of me and contact me anytime. All right, we'll do. Have a good one, DJ. Thank Take you, care. DJ. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to the Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.